The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 15 this evening, which is also the end of the chapter. This chapter contains an awesome example of repentant prayer after sin. Ezra chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites and the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God might brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that they have filled it, from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their sons for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, 
and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9, we'll be reading through verse 14 this evening. The word of our God. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Please keep your place here in the New Covenant reading, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. What must we do in order to be justified before Almighty God? And where should we be looking to find assurance that we have been embraced by a loving God in his mercy and will belong in his steadfast love forever? Please don't rush over those questions and the connected answers. While tonight's parable is very familiar to all of us, and it's actually quite simple, we should remind ourselves that the parable does include a very religious person who is confident that they are on the straight and narrow path to heaven when, in fact, they are running down the highway to hell. It would be easy for us to say, well, of course that isn't us, and then we remember that is precisely what the Pharisee would have said about himself. Surely, if anybody, it is not me. Furthermore, the matter is not restricted to whether or not we are going to heaven when we die, as important as a question that is to answer correctly. This parable is also instructing those of us who are in fact Christians and how we ought to think about and how we ought to approach the Lord on a regular basis in prayer. Given the ultimate importance of getting the right answers to these questions, let us carefully consider this portion of God's word under four headings. First, 
a confident yet disastrous way to approach the Lord. Second, the brokenhearted yet blessed way to approach the Lord. Third, Christ's own verdict on the two ways of approaching the Lord. And fourth, a final warning for all of us. I will be spending most of the time this evening on the first movement, a confident yet disastrous way to approach the Lord, simply because that has the most moving parts. But as I hope you'll see, all four of these points actually belong together as one single big idea. Let me give them to you again. First, a confident yet disastrous way to approach the Lord. Second, the brokenhearted yet blessed way to approach the Lord. Third, Christ's own verdict on how we approach the Lord. And fourth, a final warning for all of us. Jesus begins by setting the scene, verses 9 and 10. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, intriguingly, Jesus does not tell this parable about some who trusted in their own righteousness. He tells this parable to some who trusted in their own righteousness. Beloved, this is love. It's hard to speak to people like that. But Jesus loved these people too much to let them just happily continue on the path they were going toward destruction without seeking to grab their imaginations in order to lead them to true repentance. Isn't God good? The contrast between the two men could hardly have been any greater. One man was a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector. Yet here in the 21st century, we actually have to work hard to keep this right in our heads. We are so used to listening to the Gospels where we get John the Baptist or Jesus sometimes saying really hard things about the Pharisees that when we hear Pharisee, our mind right away goes, Pharisee, hypocrite. But see, that's not the way first century Jews would have seen them. And it's very important that we understand the way Pharisees were perceived in their culture and the way that many of them actually were. Three quick points. First, Pharisee means set-apart ones or separated ones. Uh, these were people who were distinguished by their zeal for personal holiness. For many first-century Jews, when they thought about the Pharisees, they would have thought, that's the way I would behave if I was only more devoted to the Lord than I actually am. If an analogy might help, you can think of the early Middle Ages when the monasteries were really getting going, but before they became wealthy and self-indulgent. Many Christians in the Middle Ages would have looked at these very devout monks and said, that's really what God wants from me. I wish I could be devoted to the Lord like that, but I'm not. See, the first century Jews held the Pharisees in a sense of reverential awe. They were the true men of God in their own day. Second, even in the New Testament, 
Pharisees are sometimes presented as being quite noble. I think we can lose that because we're so used to hearing scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. But you have to remember, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were both Pharisees. In fact, I want you to pay attention to something. The Pharisees were a relatively small number of people. There was not a big crowd of Pharisees. It wasn't like Republicans and Democrats. There were probably only about 3,000 Pharisees at this time in Jewish history. And we see them with Jesus over and over again. One of the things that should tell us is they cared so much about what Jesus was teaching and they cared so much about the kingdom of God that they were willing to keep showing up and to keep asking questions. Uh, by the way, it's also the case that when a group, it is a group of Pharisees who warned Jesus to flee when King Herod was seeking to kill him, right? So you, you don't want to hear music in the background when you hear Pharisee that you think they're wearing the black hats, these are the bad guys coming onto the scene. Um, if you're going to think about background music, you want to think applause music. These are the heroes of the story. That is how first century Jews would have seen them. Third, as I pointed out, one of the reasons why um, the Pharisees are so prominent in the Gospels is because they care. It turns out um, that the best we can reconstruct, we can't reconstruct this perfectly, but the best that we can reconstruct is after Jesus died and rose again from the dead, a large percentage of these Pharisees actually converted and became Christians and even leaders in the early church. It is only by realizing the Pharisees were considered to be paragons of Jewish virtue that we will rightly understand this parable. But how did this particular Pharisee in the parable approach the Lord? Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Well, the first thing we're going to notice about the Pharisee is his posture. He... he was standing there. He took his place. Right? We could even say he took his stand. The Pharisee was relaxed and he was confident. He knew that if anyone belonged in the temple courts, he was the man. Now, as modern Westerners, um, I know some of you are probably a little shy about praying in public, praying out loud in public in front of other people. Uh, and we're so used to praying and reading quietly to ourselves that we can forget that in the ancient Mediterranean world, people normally read out loud and they prayed out loud as well. When these Jews would gather in the temple courts to pray, I mean, they weren't shouting, but they were audible. They were speaking. Other people could hear them. As I say, some of you are probably a little uncomfortable with that, the idea of standing up in front of church and praying out loud. This Pharisee wasn't like that. When he thought of himself, he thought of himself as a man who was setting a very good example for everyone else. If only they could be inspired to be as pious and as righteous as he was. Now, on the one hand, the prayer appears to begin well enough in that it begins by thanking God. 
But it turns out that this is just pious language. Loosely covering over his own sense of self-sufficiency and superiority to other men. For one thing, you'll notice that this Pharisee doesn't actually ask the Lord for anything. It's not simply he doesn't ask the Lord that he would be forgiven his sins. He doesn't even ask the Lord for his daily bread. It's as though he thinks, you know, maybe God helped me get off to a good start, but I got things covered pretty well. Uh, I think it's also worth pointing out that when he surveys the rest of the people in the temple courts, people whom he imagines are not doing as well as he is, this Pharisee doesn't pray for their spiritual lives. Or once again, he doesn't even pray for their daily bread. He's not looking to God as the provider who graciously cares for his people. He is standing before God and giving a performance. His prayer focuses almost entirely on the personal pronoun I, where he simply gives thanks for how much better he is than other men. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, the first thing we ought to say about this comes from the Apostle Paul. Those who compare themselves by themselves are not wise. I mean, this Pharisee is grading himself on a curve to other human beings. Now, he might be wrong about these other human beings, but even if he's right, his whole approach is wrong. He's standing before Almighty God, and he's saying, Lord, don't you see how much better I am than all the rest of the people who are crowding your temple court. Those who judge themselves by themselves are not wise. Here's where it gets a little bit irritating to ourselves. Uh, While the Pharisee was doing this in a glaring way, we should acknowledge that we are all tempted to inflate our own self-image by comparing ourselves with others whom we imagine are worse sinners than we are. That is a common temptation that all of us will experience. And even when we recognize how wrong-headed this is, perhaps you have a really profound moment of insight to how wrong it is in your own life, a couple months later you're going to find yourself perhaps doing a little bit of it again. This is a natural way for us to seek to justify ourselves in our own thinking. If we are seeking the praise of man, this sort of superficial grading of ourselves on a curve might actually work, at least for a little time. Yet to come into the presence of Almighty God with this sort of attitude is frankly to evidence a type of spiritual insanity. I mean, do we not remember that we are coming into the presence of the perfectly holy God who knows and searches out the thoughts and intents of all our hearts. Those things we thought were stashed away secretly in our heart and our mind, they they are open and plain before our God in heaven. Well, the second thing we ought to acknowledge is that this Pharisee is not a rare outlier. I think that's a danger of reading a parable like this. You can almost think of this Pharisee as he's so far out there in self-righteousness 
that, that, you know, I don't have to worry about it. It's not something that happens or impinges in my own life. Here's a question. When's the last time you attended a funeral? Or had to deal with someone fairly close to you dying, so you talked to a lot of people around it? I am pretty confident that at least at half the funerals I've ever been, I have heard someone say something like this. So-and-so was such a good person. If they're not in heaven, we're all in trouble. I mean, you know, someone who behaved as good as they did, all the kind deeds they've done for people. Now, I want to cut people a degree of slack. I mean, this is a time of great emotional loss and grief. But do you realize what people are saying? They're grading people on a curve just like the Pharisee. Right? They're not saying God was gracious to this person and that's why they're saved because Christ died for their sins. And by the way, I hear this at Christian funerals as well. They're saying that person was good enough. In fact, more than good enough. Better than the rest of us and we think we're good enough too. And if you're wondering, this really was a problem in first century Judaism. It's not just a problem in modern America. Here is a prayer that comes to us from the Babylonian Talmud. Right? This is a Jewish religious document of great authority. And this prayer comes from that Talmud um, probably about uh, 80 or 90 years after Jesus gives this parable, but it's hard to date some of these. I give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast set my portion with those who sit in the house of learning, and thou hast not set my portion with those who sit in the street corners. For I rise early, and they rise early. But I rise early for words of Torah, and they rise early for frivolous talk. I labor, and they labor. But I labor and receive a reward, and they labor and do not receive a reward. I run, and they run. But I run to the life of the future world, and they run to the pit of destruction. Do you hear how similar that actually is to the prayer that Jesus is giving in the parable? But see, the Babylonian Talmud is not putting that prayer out there as an example of hypocrisy. It's putting it out there as a type of prayer that a truly righteous Jew would pray is a good example for others. To approach the Lord as though we are intrinsically righteous requires us to have a radically distorted understanding of our own thoughts and deeds. And yet there's something else worth mentioning about the, how the Pharisee compares himself to other people, or frankly, this prayer from the Talmud, how the rabbi in that is also comparing himself to other people. The Pharisee not only has an excessively high view of himself, he also has an excessively critical view of everyone else. As Terry Johnson points out, an inflated view of self is always accompanied by a deflated view of others. You should think about that. In fact, that could be an early warning system of something going wrong in our own spiritual lives. An inflated view of self almost always corresponds to a deflated view, an overly critical view of other people. So think about your own heart and think about your words over the last few weeks. If you find yourself being excessively critical, 
where your conversations are naturally turning to pointing out what's wrong with other people, whether it's people close to you or it's politicians or whatever it is, but criticism has come to a place of being really prominent in your life, you ought to watch out. One, that excessively critical spirit is not something we ought to have as Christians, and two, it very well may be an indicator that you are wrongly thinking of yourself as being righteous before God in your own merits. Beloved, please don't let this fester. Instead of criticizing others, pray for them. The very thing we do not hear the Pharisee doing. You, you see other people stumbling in their weakness, pray for them and give them a hand and help them back up. The Apostle Paul would challenge the Romans, who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. The Pharisee is busily ignoring the splinters in everyone else's eyes. I'm sorry, busily pointing out the splinters in everyone else's eyes, while blissfully ignoring the log in his own. Here's an illustration I heard from Rico Tice this week. Uh, it's from a movie. Uh, the movie is called The Talented Mr. Ripley. I haven't seen the movie, don't know if it's any good, but I really like this illustration. I want to share it with you. I think it'll be helpful for you to think about the reality of our lives. Uh, Matt, Matt Damon is starring as Tom Ripley in this movie. Tom is playing the piano, and he suddenly stops and confesses to his lover, don't you just take the past, put it in a room in the basement, lock the door, and never go there. That's what I do. I take the past, put it in a room in the basement, lock the door, and never go there. Then he goes on wistfully playing at the piano. You meet someone special, and all you want to do is toss them the key and say, open it up, step inside. I keep wanting to do that. Just throw the door open and let the light in and clean everything. But you can't because it's dark and there are demons in there. And if anyone saw how ugly it is, and then he just stopped talking. And a little later in the movie, he says, I am lost. I am stuck in the basement, in the dark, all by myself. Isn't it true of all of us that we have those dark things in our past that we really do want to keep locked up in the basement? Out of sight? Beloved, the Pharisee was pretending he didn't have any of those dark corners. That he had nothing in his past or in his present that would lead him to being embarrassed, either before man or before God. He was confident the Lord was happy with him just the way that he was. Now, there's two important ways that we can understand this Pharisee. One is we can think of him as being a Pelagian. That is somebody who is saying, by my own effort, I am acceptable to God just the way that I am. In fact, I think you read this 
where the Pharisee's putting this, he's really saying, boy, the Lord got a pretty good catch when he got me. And that my own performance is enough for me to be able to stand before the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart. That is possibly what Jesus is getting at. But I want to suggest it's useful for us to consider that the Pharisee might be a semi-Pelagian. By semi-Pelagian, what I mean is, yes, he's looking at his own performance, but it's a cooperative arrangement. He recognizes that the Lord's grace is necessary. A kind of a crass way to put it is, the Lord does his part, and I do mine. And keep in mind, the Pharisee does begin his prayer by saying, I thank you, Lord. He might be saying, Lord, you're the one that got this all going, and then I did my part really well. Now, here's the thing about semi-Pelagianism, two thoughts. First, it's the view of Roman Catholicism and a great deal of pietistic Protestantism. This is not a weird view over there in the corner. Second, if you adopt a semi-Pelagian approach to life, since you're thinking God does his part, I do mine, and it's obvious God's going to do his part, the place you're going to look for assurance is inside yourself. Am I doing my part? Am I loving enough? Am I kind enough? Do do I study God's word enough? Am I pure enough? And so on, all the enoughs, right? That's the natural thing to do. By the way, that is precisely what Roman Catholic Christians and what most pietist Christians um, in the Protestant tradition do when they're looking for assurance. They look inside of themselves. Now, please don't miss this. This is critical. I am not saying that all Roman Catholics and all pietist Christians are actually the Pharisee in this parable. By God's grace, multitudes of Christians are inconsistent with their system of theology. The very fact that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, means it's not based on you having an orthodox theology of justification. God is gracious. You trust in Jesus with all your messed up theology. You are saved. You are loved by God for eternity. Praise God. But having the wrong theology has real ramifications in your life. How you pray, whether or not you enjoy insurance, and how you view and treat other people. Therefore, let's make sure that we're getting one very large issue correct. Looking inside our own hearts or at our own performance, even if we attribute all of that performance to the gracious, transforming work of God, is to approach the Lord on the wrong terms. Because you're not going to be perfectly sanctified in this life. If your justification is going to be based on your sanctification, you're going to have to do one of two things. Water down God's standard, he doesn't require perfection, and grossly inflate your own performance. Now the Pharisee is doing that in spades, but all of us are going to be tempted to do that in part if we're looking inside of ourselves to find assurance. The biblical vision as expressed in both the Reformed and Lutheran traditions, is that we are to look outside of ourselves to Jesus Christ. 100% of the righteousness that we have in justification comes from outside of us as a gift. It is Christ's righteousness reckoned to our account. And because 100% depends on him, 
None of it depends on you. If you're looking inside yourself, you are looking in the wrong place. And it does turn out that we're only going to consistently and rightly enjoy the assurance of salvation that our Father in Heaven wants us to have if we place all of the weight upon Jesus, who he is and what he has done, and none of the weight upon ourselves, even upon the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Well, if this Pharisee is showing us the wrong way to approach the Lord, how, in fact, should we approach him in order to receive his blessing upon our lives? Look at verse 13 with me. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, tax collectors have never been particularly popular in any culture. I mean, even in our own day. Maybe you have some friends who are IRS agents, I don't know. But I think even in our own day, where we have lots of rule of law and everything, tax collectors are still not popular. Everyone wants lower taxes. But we need to recognize that Roman tax collectors were utterly despised in ancient Israel. First, they were collecting taxes for the empire that was occupying God's chosen people. Right? This was the occupying enemy. Uh, to give you an analogy to get sort of a feel for this, try imagining a Jewish person being a tax collector in Nazi Germany in 1939. It just makes no sense. Right? I mean, that person would have to be such a sellout to be working for the Nazi regime to raise taxes for them as they really get going persecuting the Jews. If you can get that, you have something like the idea of the way that almost all Jews would have felt in Jesus' day about the tax collectors. The tax collectors themselves would have been Jewish local people who had sold out and betrayed the cause simply to make some extra money. Second, the Romans engaged in what is known as tax farming. We are so used to the fact you've got all these laws and rules and forms that get filled out and so on. We have to take this leap back and understand that's not how they did it. The Romans did not set up an internal revenue service throughout their empire. In all their territories, like in Judea, they would do this. They would sell the concession to raise taxes to somebody, and they would sell it for the amount of money they wanted in taxes. And they did this all over the empire. So suppose there was a territory, the Romans said, you know what, we want 10 talents of gold from that territory every year. They would sell the concession for 10, 10 talents of gold to a business person, usually a group of business people. They would, they would come together and form a coalition and buy this up. And then that coalition had the authority of the Roman Empire to raise taxes. And everything they raised over the 10 talents of gold they had to pay Rome was profit. So you see, they had a huge incentive to shake people down for more money. And then they would hire supervisors. Actually, Levi, for example, was a tax-collecting supervisor. We see him in the New Testament, becomes an apostle. And then they would also hire people right on the ground who were just doing the nitty-gritty work of raising taxes. And to incentivize them properly, they were all paid the same way. If you raise more money than we're calling on, you get to keep it. 
And so everybody involved in the tax system in Judea was considered corrupt because they're working for the Romans, but they were also trying to raise more money from the people than the law allowed. It's not surprising that they were therefore utterly despised. No wonder this tax collector stood afar off. He doesn't take a stand in the temple like he's, he belongs there. He knew that he wasn't welcome in the temple courts by the religious people of his own day, and frankly, he didn't blame them. He was, after all, a sinner. A sinner who had no way to commend himself spiritually, either to God or to his neighbors. He was even too ashamed to look up into heaven. Now, we're used to bowing our heads when we pray. That's kind of a tradition in America. Uh, the normal way people would pray in the temple courts is they would stand, they would look up to heaven, and they would hold out their hands. That's the way they would have prayed in the first century in temple courts. But this publican was so ashamed that instead of looking up to God with raised hands to worship him, he held his eyes down. He was ashamed of his own sin. He simply beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Actually, the Greek has the definite article. I'm not sure why so many translations haven't put that in here. He's actually saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. That is, he's also like the Pharisee comparing himself to everyone else around. But whereas the Pharisee looked and said, Lord, you know, I'm the best catch here. I'm so glad I'm not like these other people, and particularly like this, this tax collector here. The tax collector probably is very much looking over at the Pharisee, and he's comparing himself too. And he's saying, Lord, that Pharisee appears to be so righteous, precisely the type of man that you want me to be, and I'm so ashamed that I'm not like that. God be merciful to me, the sinner. It's perhaps worth pointing out that the tax collector's prayer has a famous Old Testament precedent. After being convicted of his sin with Bathsheba, David writes the 51st Psalm. The 51st Psalm begins like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You go read the whole thing. It's a beautiful psalm. David is just throwing himself on God's mercy, asking the Lord to wash him clean and make him whiter than snow to restore to him the joy of his salvation. This tax collector was too worn out to write something that eloquent. But the spirit of his prayer is the same. God, I have no hope except for you. I cast myself entirely upon your mercy. If you don't give me what I don't deserve, my case is utterly hopeless. The salvation he is pleading for must come by grace alone. Well, what, you, what would you have thought if you were there? That's another place we read this parable wrong. We read this parable and we're, we're there cheering away for the tax collector. But you know, if we were standing in the temple courts, we probably would have taken things at face value. There's this conspicuously righteous Pharisee 
who's worshiping the Lord, we would imagine, in spirit and in truth. And there's this tax collector. I mean, shouldn't he at least clean his life up? You know, what's this nonsense coming to the temple courts? Give up being a tax collector first. We might have even thought it's kind of an amazing act of God's mercy that the Lord hasn't struck him dead standing there in the temple courts praying. That's very well what we could have thought. A reminder that man looks on outward appearances, but the Lord looks upon the heart. What does Jesus say? Jesus so wants his hard-hearted listeners to get this parable that he doesn't just give them this parable, he tells it to them, and he gives us this authoritative interpretation. We can't get it wrong. I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. According to Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate God, the incarnate God who will one day come to judge the living and the dead, is the person who casts himself or herself entirely upon the mercy of God, who gets justified entirely by God's free grace in Jesus Christ. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Now, as Bible-believing Christians in the Reformed tradition, I don't think that will surprise any of you. And yet, there's a very important final warning for all of us to hear. It is vital for us to remember that humility is about bowing the knee to Almighty God. It is about looking outside of ourselves to the grace of God in Jesus Christ is our only hope in life and in death. Humility is not about speaking badly of ourselves. See, otherwise we could totally misunderstand what Jesus is saying when he says the humble will be justified. All I need to do is go about speaking badly of myself and that will show that I'm really a good person. Here's my point. This is why I think this is so important. One of the most common forms of pharisaicalism in the 21st century in North America goes something like this. I thank you, Lord, but I'm not like that Pharisee over there. I don't pretend to be all religious and pious. I'm honest about the fact that I'm not perfect, and I have memorized the one truly important saying of Jesus, judge not lest ye be judged. Sure, I don't tithe, I don't teach my children to walk in your ways or care about your kingdom all that much, but I thank you that at least I'm not like this hypocritical Pharisee. Do you see the problem? To speak like that is precisely to be like the Pharisee. All you've done is change the standard. You've changed the standard from external works of righteousness to me confessing that I'm a horrible person. But you're still making it about yourself rather than about the grace of God. Beloved, this is a very real problem in our day. I've confronted this numerous times. Uh, it's really sad to talk to people who seem to imagine that the only sin you can go to hell for is the sin of hypocrisy. Confessing that you're a guilty person does not justify you before God. Seeking the Lord that he would grant you righteousness in Christ, that's the only foundation for our justification 
Jesus does in fact say that the one who humbles himself will be exalted. But as C.S. Lewis points out, true humility is not about thinking poorly about yourself. It's about not thinking about yourself at all. In justification, humility is about looking outside of yourself to find a fully sufficient Savior in Jesus Christ. See, true humility is about placing all your confidence in him and therefore none of your confidence in yourself. But what about that dark room in the basement which contains embarrassing and even humiliating secrets Secrets that you were trying to keep under lock and key. Mr. Ripley wanted to just throw the door open, let the light in, and clean everything. But he couldn't. Because it's dark. And there are demons in there. And if anyone saw how ugly it is, well, if you're old enough, you know what that's like. Yet here is the truly amazing thing. You can throw that door open before Almighty God if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. And Almighty God will embrace you and love you. Not because God will say it's no big deal, but because in Jesus, he will wash you whiter than snow. In Christ, Almighty God does not say no big deal. In Christ, God says, paid in full. And that is why we sing, Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins, not in part, but the whole, have been nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Amen.